Hi, my name is Sam Sheen, and this is the podcast I run with my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lundberg, Captivated Audience. This episode is an EFI limited podcast, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the Director of Operations, Jeff Bateman. Jeff, tell us a little bit about what you do at EFI. I look after the operations for EFI, primarily looking after the people to make sure that everything's ticking over correctly. I manage workflow, manage output. I love statistics, so statistics is a massive part of this, uh, and MI where we draw a bit. Background to me, been in management about 25 years, been in some sort of data for about 15 to 18 years. I look at things in a very uh, logical and pragmatic way at the same time as look at it from a risk-based approach, which has landed me in the KYC world some 10 years ago. So yeah, a long journey to get where I am today, varying different roles from everything from finance, IT, legal. So tell me a little bit more about your involvement in financial crime prevention. When was the first time you really dove into our field? So looking from an onboarding point of view, I used to work for, a, for an online stockbroker is what it ended up to be uh, around about uh, Y2K and where technology was being talked about but not really being uh, rolled out on the mass. And I remember being in a, a very detailed conversation with a joint partner that was from Luxembourg. And they were talking about how do we maintain, first of all, clients' anonymity and stays within inside their jurisdiction, uh, whilst at the same time making sure that we we're reaching those thresholds that we required with inside the, uh, the broker that I worked for. And that was really first when I, I got exposed to it and understood, right, what can A, go wrong here? And then on the rare occasion, what can actually go right? And then how to repeatedly get the right mode every time. Uh, and that's how we worked it. And uh, we looked at problematic things that were happening with inside the onboarding of uh, what were traditionally retail clients at that time and understand, you know, the problems around that. The next amusing section was I used to run the uh, cash management program for the broker. So this is where we used to receive in excess of 1,200 checks a day and issue 1,200 checks a day on an old daisy wheel printer, which used to be fun. And I remember crime department of the bank that we were running at that, that time, um, who used to do our clearing, came in and showed us how to repurpose checks on the amount and the name of the individual but keep the signature there so everything from this is how you could microwave a check to remove all the uh, the properties on it except for the, the the wet signature and then repurpose it to whatever you wanted to which scared me to no end and, uh, and made me change the way that we did our pre, uh, sorry our, our check generation from there onwards We've had a couple of chats about why it is that the KYC process itself has been historically so terribly, terribly inefficient. We talked about a few things about prioritization and tracking and stuff. Just wondering if you can take us through that a little bit, what it used to be like. I think it, it depends on the organization. So dare I say the more mature organizations come legacy. And when we say legacy, we're talking about everything from culture to IT systems to processes that haven't been reviewed. I'm a massive believer that you need to review your processes on a regular basis, not just to, to monitor what changes are happening from a tech world, but more the fact that, you know, there may be a smarter way of working out something now than you didn't think about two or three years ago. And again, the mix of individuals that you bring into your workforce and your knowledge scope might mean that they've had experiences or something else and therefore they might be bringing something new to the table that you weren't available three or four years ago. There is also obviously the more uh, nimble way of being able to uh, adopt change. And I'm saying that in a very casual manner. 
we, we all know that if you work for a large organization, let's just say change doesn't happen overnight. And therefore, I remember that you'd have a concept idea at the 1st of January one year, and it would take four years to be implemented into your system and actually see the benefit coming out the other end. And that's not the lifetime of it. You'd still be crawling about your capital investment three or four years down the line. But it was more the first time that you could see that the thing was actually being able to be worked where, you know, the more nimble, the more agile, should we say, it wasn't necessarily a thing back when odd years ago, but the more agile way of working is a better way to adapt and, and be able to change and react to obviously, you know, everything that's happening from a macro and a micro point of view. But how about though about that nimbleness? I can remember in days of yore, if you were trying to do things like customer KYC reviews, it felt very last in, first out. Everyone would have a schedule and a plan. They were supposed to review the KYC. But as soon as somebody spotted something high risk, they'd yank one of the reviewers off and say, oh, we need to go have a good look at that. And that turned into this massive black hole of time where someone would just, would just seem to like disappear and not realize it for three days, reading all sorts of obscure and vague stuff on the internet, twirling around, twirling around. And stuff just never used to get done in a timely way. So that hasn't changed at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, how, it's how you manage it. So depending on what sort of stakeholders want and what they require. I approach things depending on what I can do with my stakeholders. So some stakeholders are very open to your suggestions and others aren't, and they want to be very rigid with the way that they do because that's the way that they've always done it. And that might be the case, but as we just articulated, things change and things move on. I will advise people that we are going to go down a black hole and we have been down black holes uh, with clients in my past and no doubt I will do in the future. When looking into that abyss, I do take a breath and go and say, this is the rationale that I would suggest not doing this. And if it is, thanks very much, pat on the head, just crack on and do it, then I'll crack on and do it. But I will make sure that there's a review and I will make sure there's a review partway through the process and then at the end. So partway through is almost their get out clause. So then to go and say, look, you said you had done this done in three days, four days, whatever that time period is. So almost a third into that, I will turn around and go and say, look, we're not hitting that time scale. I don't see this changing for these reasons. There is some rationale around this. I think we need to approach it in a different way. And this would be the way that I would recommend. Happy to have a conversation around what that is. And then as long as we've had the conversation and they understand what the risks are, that we are going to go down a rabbit hole. And, but if they still insist, then we will follow that because that's what they want to do. How does that work, though? It strikes me there's a natural tension that has built up where AML was incredibly inefficient in terms of onboarding and transaction monitoring. And in the last, really, the last three to four years, we've seen a noticeable swing more towards operationalization, where people are saying, right, well, how long is it taking us to get things done? How accurate are we being? And it strikes me that that's a really hard thing to reconcile between, I suppose, the policy folks concerned you're doing it right and then making the regulator happy. But on the other hand, you are actually running a business. How do you do that without having people do stuff so quick they miss red flags, but don't do it so slow that your overhead is massive just by the volume of people you need to churn through stuff? That question could probably go into about three or four different podcasts, if I'm honest. So to break that down a little bit, there's a couple of ways that I look at it. Um, so I look at it, okay, there are certain thresholds from a regulatory point of view that you need to do. So then I go and say, right, that's in the box that I have to do. Then you've got a policy that goes and says, I would like you to do this. Okay, And that's the potential stuff that you might be able to negotiate or might be able to work on. So that's the bit I would focus on, first of all. That's the stuff that you can smartly put into a box and maybe look to generate something faster. And this is even before we start talking about automation and AI and OCRs and stuff. So then looking at that process, I've broken that down to go and say, right, this is a really hard stuff that I cannot move. I'm never going to be able to move. And I can be smarter and don't worry, I can probably work on things. But my endpoint hasn't changed and I can't move that. Whereas this middle chunk is potentially, you know, stuff that I can I can wiggle around with, or I might be able to do stuff where I can play around with economies of scale or look at it in a smarter way to come out with a similar end result. 
Now I'm being vague on purpose because what I try and do with every process that I re-engineer, I put check digits along the way and also at the end. So then I'm not caught out by, dare I say, an audit team or, or a regulator at the end of it to go and say, oh, you missed this bit. And I'm okay, I'm already in front of them to make sure that that's the case. But then there's also this chunk at the beginning that is probably the legacy stuff. So again, you can probably remove that. And that's probably almost 90, 95% waste. So if you get an end-to-end -end process that takes 100% as it were, you've probably already removed 20% of your wastage with inside that process flow without changing the end result. So can you say on a year by year that you're, you've improved your process by 20%? No one probably can, but it's because they haven't reviewed it over a certain period of time. That's before you even bring in IT. Okay, you've mentioned technology a couple of times. Can you actually give us a working example where you have seen processes involving people, automation, and a combination of the two? So there was a model that I was looking at some three or four years ago where we had almost three workflows. One was 100% human, never going to be able to be done by a computer or any type of AI. We had another workflow which expanded the middle section, and I'll come back to that in a second. And then we had the the 100% workflow that went straight through all the way to, from end to end that was artificial intelligence related. So therefore it went all the way through without touching the sides by a human. And don't worry, there was humans at the back end of it that did quality control checks to make sure that it was doing it. And there was also an exception-based reporting around that to make sure that the checks and marks were done. So that relates again to what I was talking about earlier. You can mass produce stuff going down that funnel constantly all day long. And yeah, every 10th record we pulled out, every 100th record, whatever parameters that you want to put in from a QC point. But then you had this middle section, okay? And this middle section regrettably went up and down like a xylophone. If stuff fell out of the computer-generated tunnel, it would fall into this. It would also look at the exceptions that fell out of that process, okay? So if you got to a bottleneck and then it stopped, it would fall out to a human and then it would continue. But the thing is, you've then already got 30%, 50%, 70% of your record potentially done by a computer up to a certain point. So therefore, you bring in your operational efficiencies from that. So Jeff, what should we be thinking about when we're having that conversation with the regulator about how far we're progressing remediation work that they're supervising us over? You raised a good point of why are we seeing a massive focus that in the last sort of two to three years? Obviously, regulatory focus, okay, and the regulator actually taking heed. And so you need to remedy that fast to get back to the regulator and go and say, I haven't just done what you, you asked me to do. I've gone far above what you've asked me to do. And I've, I've future proofed this for two or three years, or I've put checks and balances in and you can have a look at all of that that makes me squeaky clean. Right. My population is 10,000, 20,000 that I need to look at because that's what you've, you've highlighted to me. I will get that done in X. Now, the thing is there that they've gone to the compliance team, and I'm not having to go at the compliance teams here, but they've gone to the compliance and said, how long will it take? Now, what I usually find is there's a disconnect because the compliance teams have looked at this and gone and said, hmm, um, a year? And then the regulator's gone, great, I'll take that and I'll be back in a year. Okay, but no one's gone to ops and gone and said, actually, how long is this going to take? But the thing is, ops have been merrily doing what they've been told by A, the business, and by compliance to make sure that they hit those goalposts. No one's gone to ops and gone and said, how long will it take you? And if I put all these additional checks and balances in, is it going to add any more time? Well, you're damn right it will. And it's going to add another 20% to my time or another 30% to my time. So a year target to get everything done is never going to happen. So what needs to be happening inside the organization then to make this work right? So what needs to happen is there needs to be a grown-up conversation with inside the business before going back to the regulator and making promises that they can't keep. Because what you don't want to do, and I'm watching my language here that I don't swear, is you don't want to annoy the regulator. That's the worst case scenario. So if you've got a regulator that you've told that you're going to go back in 12 months, get your project done in nine. Don't go back on the 11th you know, month and go, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm 30% I'm, I'm short and I'm going to have to go over a little bit. 
be very open with the regulator. I've never, you know, never lied to the regulator. And don't worry, I've, I've had 29 reportable events to a regulator, which were all remediation uh, elements with inside a firm that I worked for, where the regulator said, I'll see you in three months. And went, no, you won't. You'll see me every week and I'll submit a report to you. I will make sure that I adhere to that. So you know that I'm going to hit that benchmark or I'm not. So it's not a massive shock for you when you come back in three months. And plus, it will make sure that my socks are pulled up so tight that I'm making sure that I'm hitting that benchmark. Want to hear more about the alchemy that is KYC operationalization? Well, Jeff has some more great stories and advice in part two of his podcast. Until then, thanks for listening. Feel free to reach out directly on the EFI Limited website, or you can also drop them a line directly on LinkedIn. Until the next time, have a great day and stay safe.